hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. What's up, everybody? How's everybody doing today? This is uh, this is a new and unique experiment. I got this new Rodecaster Pro, which allows me to do all kinds of stuff live, like that music and this introduction and everything. So this is going to be the first one that I'm attempting to do completely by myself, completely unedited. No help from Brock or anyone else today. Um, but I'm gonna be making a phone call to my friend because we're all we're all locked up in uh, quarantine, kind of. Just very strange time in the world right now. Very strange time. Um, people are very afraid of the coronavirus. Uh, for the first time today, I got news of one of my friends, my close friends, within my f- friend group having come down with the coronavirus, although the strange thing is he's showing no symptoms and he was mandatorily tested because he was around someone else that had it. And when it came back, it was positive for for it. So now he's he's under quarantine. I, I don't know if by, by law is the right word or what, but he's under quarantine for two weeks to see if he comes down with it. But that's the weird thing right now is there are people that, that have, have this and they're showing no symptoms, no signs. I guess that's why it's so, so scary to everybody. Um, but anyway, a little lighter news today. It, we're going to touch base again with my friend Kyle Jemis. Kyle has uh, done an incredible amount of traveling recently. And one thing that he's done 
really caught my attention. If you remember, we had Kyle on the show before, and he had gone to the Seychelles. He told us all about that trip, how we could do that trip if we wanted to, and the experience that he had there was fantastic. He did another trip, and I'm not exactly sure where he went. We're going to find out in just a few minutes, but he targeted the fish that is probably number one on my list, and that's the Arapaima. So I uh, want to hear all about it. Let's uh, let's touch base with Kyle, and we'll call him right now and uh, see if we can make this whole operation work, see how this goes. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Hey, Tom. Hey, Kyle. All right. So far, so good. I am uh, working technology to my advantage. Everything seems to be working. We're recording. So off we go. Cool, man. Perfect. Um, What a strange time we're living in, huh? Yeah, it's uh, unprecedented across the board. And uh, it's very interesting. Um, And yeah, it's uh, just weird, man. (laughs) Just weird. (laughs) How has it affected you? Well, you know, it hasn't affect. Well, so I, my, my my main job is uh, I'm in a corporate banking, and uh, I live here in Dallas, Texas. And you know, it's pretty much been business as usual for me for the most part. I mean, I've been instructed and asked to uh, you know work from home or work remote as much as possible. So I've been doing that the last few days now, and um, you know, and then I it's really starting to affect though some of my customers. A lot of my customers are you know, businesses of all different kinds, you know, some are manufacturers, some are wholesalers, some are more kind of retail kind of consumer businesses. And, you know, the, uh, most of my manufacturing guys are, you know, they're getting through it fine right now, but, uh, some of my retail and consumer related businesses are really hurting, you know, and there's, it's just, it's tough time for them. And, you know, I think it's going to be a tough time for a lot of folks. So, um, just trying to take it one day at a time and do as best as we can and see what happens. Yeah. Yeah, it's really, it's really strange. With the manufacturing people that you're talking to, are there any um, recommendations or suggestions in place that they operate multiple shifts or try to spread things out so in in some way so that there's not as many people working at a time? Yeah, yeah. So I have a couple, a couple of my customers um, who are really, I think, almost ahead of the curve in a lot of this stuff in the sense that, you know, they're really taking precautions as far as, I mean, they're still operating typically two to three shifts a day, but, you know, they've kind of taken that same approach as, you know, the bare amount of people, you know, as little people, you know, as possible. And then with automation and whatnot, that kind of helps too. Um, and, you know, and trying to keep space and make sure everything's been cleaned properly. So, um, you know, still maintaining a pretty normal production schedule for the most part, but just really with extra emphasis and focus on, you know, just best practices and cleaning and spacing. And, um, you know, I think everyone at this point in time kind of understands kind of what the concept is, right. You know, the distancing and trying to keep clean and all that good stuff. So I think everyone's pretty obviously aware and cognizant. So I think that helps too. Um, so pretty, 
pretty normal, I think, for the most part for a lot of my guys, but definitely a uh, top of mind. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, that's the same thing that we're seeing for the most part everywhere. I think it's, uh, but being, it's becoming a little more aggressive to the West, um, Washington and California, I guess where, where they've had the most activity, they're starting to get a little more, a little more aggressive about it, but it'll be interesting to see what happens here in the next couple of days. But anyway, it, it, uh, kind of, um, gives a lot of people a lot of time on their hands. Um, and that's what I wanted to do with you today is catch up on this trip that you just took because dude, you, you hit me in my, in my soft spot, really. Um, you know, the Seychelles, that's a trip that I want to take. We talked about that before, but seriously, if I had one fish that was on my list that I just hope to catch, you know, in this lifetime, it would be the Arapaima. And I don't know if I have set unreasonable or unrealistic expectations about how great this fish could possibly be. Um, I don't know. I've got a lot of questions about it. And that's the trip that you just took. So when I saw you post these pictures on Instagram, and great pictures, by the way, um, I knew that I wanted to catch up with you. So um, how did you target that fish or was, or did you target that area and it had that fish? How did you, how did this trip come together for you? Yeah. So, you know, what's interesting is, as you know, I mean, fly fishing's always kind of been my thing. I'm pretty much just a fly guy, but, uh, and then kind of within that world of fly fishing, I really mainly just stuck to the flats, you know, kind of saltwater type fishing. Um, but I was always intrigued by, you know, as the fly fishing game and just kind of around the world continues to evolve the different opportunities that were available and starting to become available in some of these, you know, freshwater, specifically jungle settings. Um, and this would have been, goes back to probably about 2012, um, Costa Del Mar, the sunglass company, which I'm sure that most people are familiar with. They actually sponsored a project down in a country called Guyana in South America. And the goal there was to kind of empower the local um, native tribes um, who through the government of Guyana, they have, you know, rights to their natural lands, thousands and thousands of acres of, you know, pristine wilderness. And, but, you know, obviously they live a subsistence lifestyle and they were getting a lot of pressure from various, you know, extraction industries, oil, mining, things of that nature, timber, logging, um, that really wanted to start, you know, utilizing the resources that were found on their land and, they really didn't want to do that and they needed some kind of an economic vehicle, you know, to drive income to keep kind of those industries away. Um, so Costa sponsored a project in 2012 and they sent Oliver White, a few other names in the fly fishing industry down there um, to try to see if they could, you know, establish some kind of a sport fishing operation to drive money. And they made a cool video about it. It's called Jungle Fish. And I remember I saw that video probably in about 2013 or, you know, maybe about a year or so after it came out. And that just kind of planted that little bug in the back of my mind. I, I kind of remembered that. And, you know, obviously the main attraction was Arapaima there. I said, man, that looks really, really cool. You know, it looks like it reminds me of like a, a bigger tarpon, you know, yeah. in fresh water. So it really kind of stuck in my mind. And then, you know, over the years, the operation down there became a little bit more and more refined and a few more people started doing it. And um, then I guess, you know, last year, really, I, 
I kind of got serious about it. You know, I said, I really want to do this. And they have a very limited window season down there to fish these things. And I just, you know, kind of said I wanted to go for it because that was always something I really wanted to do. And I've been thinking about for a while. Um, and just kind of the opportunity came up and the time came up and, um, just decided to go for it. Wow. So how does that, how does that happen? Who, who manages like who goes down there? Yeah. So a little bit of background. So obviously I was in a place called Guyana. Guyana is actually, it's a country in South America, east of Venezuela, north of Brazil and, uh, to the west of Suriname. Isn't that, north, isn't that we, where Jim Jones had his suicide yes, cult? Yes, that is. I was yeah. gonna, I was, you stole my thunder. Yep. I was gonna <laughs> say, most people are familiar with it from Jonestown. <laughs> yes. Did you see but, Jonestown when you were there? I did not. It's probably no, just an uh, overgrown jungle these days. but that Yeah, I, I don't think there's a whole lot there. But uh, no, the site where that occurred was, uh, was to the northwest of where I was at. But uh, yes, that is, uh, that is what really, I guess, put it on the map in the first place. And um, these days I think it's more so on the map for, uh, sport fishing and ecotourism, but, uh, but yes, yeah, still that's where that did happen. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, so the way that works is, and what's cool about Guyana is it's actually the only country in South America where English is the official language. Um, it used to be a former British, uh, territory. Um, so a lot of people, it's not, I guess, which is nice for me because, I don't speak a whole lot of languages outside of English. So it's, it's easy, it's easy for, you know, Westerners or Americans or whoever to, you know, kind of navigate and throughout the country. Cause that, that helps, I think. Right. Um, and the way it works is basically you, um, you're fishing where I was fishing was at the Rewa Eco Lodge, which is a program that's managed by a local, um, native tribe of folks down there. They're called the Bakushis. Um, and it's their land. They've lived there for, you know, hundreds of years and they, you know, have all the rights to land and they kind of run the program. And then over the years, there's another, uh, organization called Indie Fly, which is a nonprofit. And their kind of whole goal is basically to, you know, help empower local tribes and communities throughout the world to kind of use sport fishing as an economic vehicle to, you know, promote conservation, save their land, their resources, and earn money off of it. So you have the Makushi, which are kind of like the local, you know, on the ground people, their operation, their program, they do all the guiding, the lodging, all that stuff. And then IndieFly kind of helps manage them from kind of a, almost a little bit of a business perspective and kind of helps send, you know, interested clients down there and whatnot. Um, so it's a good little partnership that works well. Um, and they have a, they always send a host down there too, um, to kind of act as, you know, an additional kind of liaison between the natives and the anglers. So it's good, good, uh, good program and good setup. So it, it actually runs fairly efficiently and smoothly. Hmm. And so what, what, what is the host like? Is that a fisherman or is that a, just a language expert or just somebody that's familiar with the, with the tribe or, or what? Yeah. So what's cool is, um, you know, again, for the tribe, um, they all speak, you know, their native language, their Makushi tongue, and they also speak English, uh, pretty well, you know, I mean, it's not perfect, but you know, it's, it's enough to understand and communicate effectively. And then, so really the job of the host for, um, from IndieFly is, um, just kind of go down there 
and, um, you know, again, kind of help with that. And, you know, at a place like this, you probably don't really need a whole lot just because it's a little bit more rugged. But, you know, sometimes there's, I guess, in the world, in my opinion, of international fly fishing, some of these destinations and lodges, you know, sometimes clients can be a little, um, you know, demanding or, you mm-hmm. know, complain about certain things or whatnot. And kind of the host is there just to kind of make sure that there's always a, you know, a good line of communication and kind of everyone, you know, between the clients and the, uh, the tribe down there, which again, a place like this, you wouldn't really have probably that issue just because people kind of know what they're getting into when they go down there. But our host was a guy named, uh, Johan, and he's actually a guide, a fishing guide from, uh, Africa. Um, and he guides, you know, tiger fish and all kinds of really cool things and, uh, fishing opportunities in Africa. Um, so he was there for the week, uh, with us too. And, uh, you know, he just was kind of there to, like I said, he would come with us, he would take photos, all the guiding and stuff was all handled by the tribe down there, but he would just, you know, kind of there to make sure that everything was moving, you know, as it should be and everything. So it was good to have him along. Yeah. So, so I want to know all about the, um, like the guiding, of course, but what I want to know mostly is I'm, I'm looking at these pictures of the Arapaima right now on the internet. If you just Google Arapaima, A-R-A-P-A-I-M-A, you'll, you'll get all of these, all of these, uh, pictures. There's one super iconic one of a, of a tribesman looks like a native person holding one by the, by the jaw with his arms overhead. And he's pulling this thing out of the water. And I've seen this picture a ton of times and the fish is literally as big as he is. I mean, these, these things are like anywhere from four to maybe seven feet long. I don't, I don't know how big they grow. Probably the Wikipedia here says as much as three meters, so 9.8 feet. Um, the ones that I'm seeing the most of are like anywhere from four to six feet long. So these fish are just native to... The Am- is it the Amazon right there? Is that what you're saying? That's fishing? correct. Yeah. So they're yep. just native to that area. Is that correct? Yeah. So the yeah so the fish itself is fascinating. Like you said, it's actually the largest uh, freshwater fish in the world, um, which is pretty cool. And what's interesting about that fish is it's yeah it's only native to that Amazon uh, basin, which is going to be South America. Um, and the fish itself, it, it's huge, right? Like you said, most of them, you know, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, sometimes feet long, you know, hundreds and hundreds of pounds. And it grows really quick. Um, and what's really interesting about that is because Makushi, the tribe down there, they've, they, they have kind of their own little science team and they've studied this fish, um, you know, kind of more so, I guess, formally the last couple of years, they've had various scientists and PhDs from the States come down there and kind of write, you know, with different tagging and projects and things like that. So their data and analysis of the fish is actually really starting to ramp up. And what's crazy is what they've found is a lot of those fish, you know, the big ones, the seven, the eight, the nine footers, they're not that old. They're only about probably 10 to 11 years old. Really? And the fish doesn't have a very long lifespan. Typically, they estimate that if the fish is over 10 years old, that's very old for the fish. I mean, those are your big, big fish that you're seeing. They just don't live very long. They grow really fast a lot. So they don't, uh, they just don't, uh, have a great lifespan. They're just always growing. 
Um, and what's interesting about that is the last two years down there, they've actually, when I say they, I mean the tribe down there, they've actually started tagging every single fish that is caught um, by the anglers down there. So what they'll do is they'll, they have a little uh, microchip that they um, insert into the fish and then they'll take a length and a girth measurement and then record, you know, where it was caught, who caught it, all that good stuff um, for recapture purposes to kind of understand kind of how the fast the fish grows, where is it going, things of that nature. So it's really neat. And for me, I've always been kind of intrigued by kind of the science behind that and the conservation and the understanding of that fish. So I'm excited to see in the years to come because I think they really have a cool kind of database and system going on, which I think will really really drive what'll be truly probably the first real kind of data and analysis of this fish that's ever been done. Hmm. Um, they're pretty dialed and it's pretty cool. So obviously a fish of this size is a, a, a major food source for the natives, right? Or it has been Absolutely. in the past. Like Absolutely. That, was, that was their beef cattle. That was their bison. That was their, mm-hmm. you know, um, antelope or, or deer, or whatever, that that's the, that's the source of protein that is, that is there. And so they obviously were, were fishing for these fish to, to eat them, right? For, for a long, absolutely. long time. Oh, so yeah, absolutely. what was the method of fishing for the, for the natives? That's, and that's, that was part of the thing that I love the most, you know, because we get, you know, all these Westerners that come down there with all these, you know, fancy, fancy fly rods and stuff. And these guys, Tom, have been catching fish the old school way, you know, as simple as sometimes just a little hand line, you know. Um, and then sometimes it would also, they would shoot it with a bow and arrow. Mm-hmm. Um, because what's interesting about the arapaima, it's similar to a tarpon or here in the U.S., a gar in the sense that it has, uh, a pair of lungs so it has to come up to the surface to gulp air um so you can effectively you know if you were to set up in one of these lakes or ponds you know and it, you could you could effectively stand there on the canoe or raft or whatever like they did and as it would come up you could you know potentially puncture it that way with a bow and arrow or like i said you will i mean anything as simple to a hand line a little piece of fish i mean it's very <laughs> Very simple, you know, but that's traditionally how they would catch them. And the fish, like you said, is one, it grows really big, so it provides a lot of meat food source. And then two, um, you know, they obviously they don't eat them anymore, but when they did, apparently the fish tasted very, very good too. <laughs> so, um, you know, it kind of checked a few boxes there. And because of that, it was basically, you know, over harvested and hunted to the basically the brink of extinction to where you know, again, the fish used to have a wide range all across northern South America and the Amazon basin, but now is really only found in a few kind of really good spots in a few different countries, Guyana being probably really the best place to truly fish for wild, you know, arapaima to, to this day, hmm. but uh, so a great food source for sure. I mean, you mentioned Costa, but who was it that identified this as a, a, a situation that was you know, in jeopardy, do you know? Yeah. So, you know, obviously when people think of Guyana, like I said, the first thing that typically comes to mind is Jonestown. <laughs> and besides that, there's really not a whole lot of industry down there. It's only one of two countries in the world today that still has over 75% 
of its actual forest and rainforest still intact. And the population is pretty small. It's only about 750,000 people live in the entire country. Hmm. So they have a really good set of natural resources. And like I said, the Makushi, they've been down there for hundreds of years. And prior to Costa, this dates back to 2005, 2006, they actually proactively tried and did build, you know, a very kind of rudimentary kind of eco lodge to try to attract tourists to fish, uh, to bird, just look at wildlife, hike through the jungle, things of that nature. And, you know, I mean, that kind of worked. They got some people, but really the engine that kind of drove that was sport fishing. And they knew about, you know, kind of the sport fishing or the fish that were there um, and the potential that it had. But, you know, obviously they need some help along the way. And like I said, Costa and Oliver White kind of connected with that, found that out, and then kind of went down there to kind of do some exploratory things. And kind of was luckily for them able to basically confirm kind of everything that they were hearing and seeing from the tribe. Um, and then it really, you know, started to kind of get off the ground from there. Um, so it's a really neat story about how it all kind of came together. And it's a, uh, it's a pretty special place. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, so let's talk about the, the actual fishing a little bit. Like this is a, a big fish kind of resembles a, uh, in, in my opinion, it's like a cross between a tarpon, a barramundi, and a snook. Um, it, that's what it looks like to me. Like, it kind of has the behavioral uh, qualities of a tarpon. It rolls, it's long and, and kind of slender-bodied. Um, but then it has a, a face that looks like kind of like the barramundi. And then it has, I don't know why, it kind of reminds me of a snook too a little bit. But um, how do you... How do you fish for these? Yeah, like, and that's like, are you neat. looking for them rolling like a tarpon, or are you looking mm-hmm. for them in the water? Do you see them, or are you blind casting? Like, what's the what's the method? Sure. Um, so, like you said, it's it's pretty cool fish, right? It does look like a lot of things. It gets big, but basically, the way the program kind of works is so. Obviously, picture yourself. You're in the rainforest, right? The rainforest has, you know wet season where it rains a lot water level comes up and then it has dry season where it's not raining the water level down so effectively what happens is during the wet season which is generally like may to september you know a lot of rain water level comes up river floods the forest floods and that allows the fish to kind of traverse you know all over the place wherever they want and then when the dry season starts kicking in the water level comes down and then what happens is you know, the fish then kind of have to pick and choose and they kind of get concentrated in various ponds, lakes, oxbow lakes, um, kind of water bodies like that. Um, so what the, the whole fishing program down there is built around, is it's built around fishing, obviously, in the dry season. So you can effectively target fish in these lakes and ponds. Um, and it's really cool. So basically, the way it works is down there, they have a system of all kinds of ponds, lakes, oxbow lakes that they, you know, fish and are familiar with. And basically you traverse the main river channel and then you hike through the jungle anywhere from, you know, a couple hundred yards to a couple miles to get to these various ponds and lakes um, kind of located off the main river channel. And then once you're there, then, and this is where the Makushi, I mean, they just, they're champs. 
I mean, they have guys that, you know, haul these canoes basically through the jungle, you know, miles sometimes. The they canoes? work really hard. What are the canoes like? Dugout canoes or like modern type canoes? They started out with dugout canoes, you know, built carved right out of trees, but now they're, you know, just pretty standard aluminum and some wood. Man, uh, so that, that more made, modern. That made the canoe haulers day like nothing yeah. you've ever imagined. Like a dugout 100%. canoe would weigh hundreds of pounds and soaking wet with water. That thing would be like, that would be so heavy to try try to pull that through the jungle. And then all of a sudden it, you show them an aluminum canoe, like even an old, you know, 1940s aluminum canoe, that would be like the the greatest thing in the world. It's a game changer lugging for sure. That, <laughs> lugging, a, lugging a hollowed out tree through the, through the jungle. That's it. So <laughs> it was a game changer for sure. So, you know, and then effectively what you do then is once, you know, you get out there and then you get in the canoe, um, and then you would start fishing. And yeah, like you said, um, so again, the air pilot's got lungs, so it has to come up to the surface and breathe. So yeah, you could, at times it did almost feel like tarpon fishing, like when you were looking for those kind of, you know, early morning rollers or whatnot, because they would come to the surface and gulp. Right. Um, and then so that's one way you kind of target them that way and kind of, you know, you cast a little bit ahead of where you think they kind of rolled or where their head was going. The other thing too is because obviously in these ponds and lakes, um, you know, the water is not exactly gin clear. So it's dark, right? It's muddy, it's murky. So you can't really sight fish um, super effectively as far as seeing through the water. But what you can do, obviously, like I mentioned with the rolling, um, and then also because they gulp air, they also release bubbles. Mm -hmm. So there'd be times where you could be sitting on the bow of the canoe and you would just be looking for bubbles just starting to kind of pop to the surface. And that was effectively the fish, you know, laying right under the bubbles, kind of releasing that. And so what you do is you'd basically cast, you know, a little bit up current of the bubbles and just kind of go from there. How fast um, is the current? Not very fast. Okay. I mean, there's a little bit of movement, but it's pretty, pretty stagnant for the most part. Hmm. Um, so there is an element of, like I said, kind of sight fishing to it if they're rolling or the bubbles. Um, and then sometimes you're just blind casting too. Um, there's, you know, a lot of these ponds and lakes, you know, depending on where you're at, I mean, there's a decent number of fish, so it's not always the worst strategy in the world to blind cast a little bit here and there. If you think a spot just kind of feels fishy or whatnot, because it really could be, um, so kind of, kind of all three is kind of how you kind of attack it. And, uh, it was really fun to, uh, you know, kind of experience that it was unique. Wow. You know, those bubbles, that's a technique that we use in tarpon fishing all the time. Like, but the tarpon has a funny, funny way sometimes of rolling and then gliding forward or rolling and then taking kind of a sharp left or a sharp right or kind of gliding, you know, in some direction from a sharp left to a sharp right. Like it could kind of just go off of the direction that it rolled and and maybe just ease a little bit to the left or make a hard turn to the left, you know, right after they roll. Sure. And a lot of times, you know, when the, when the light's low, you can't see them in the water. So effectively it's just like what you're saying. The water is, you, you can't see anything. So you see the fish roll and then you don't know. Well, a lot of times, you know, you'll make a cast in front of where that fish was tracking, but you get no bites. And, um, so we started looking for those bubbles a long time ago, like 
okay, well, wait, you know, just a second longer before you make that cast, and then they'll roll, and then you'll see the bubble come up, and you can see the direction that they turned after. And, boy, that, that resulted in a lot more bites. Um, so does the arapaima do something like that? Do they kind of roll and... Or like there's a lot of fish that roll and like a gar will kind of just bob up and roll where a tarpon actually kicks its tail and, and is moving when it rolls. And then, then it'll kind of glide forward. And of course you can see them kind of bob up too occasionally if they're really chill. But what do the, what do the arapaima do in your opinion? Do they kind of move when they roll or do they kind of bob up? It's, it was pretty interesting to uh, see. It's kind of a little bit of both. I mean, there were times where, and what's funny is, you could tell almost kind of what mood the fish were in, kind of based off what they were doing, kind of with that rolling behavior. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were times where they'd be just be kind of slow and happy, and like you said, kind of like a gar, just kind of come up and just kind of bob, and then just kind of slowly sink back down. And there were other times where you could tell the fish were kind of upset or irritated, probably with our presence because they would come up, you know, more aggressively kind of gulp. And then with the back end with their tail, they would literally slap the water Hmm. like hard. So you could almost tell kind of what mood the fish was in or how it was feeling based off kind of how it was, you know, coming up to the surface like that. Like I said, sometimes slow little garbob kind of float back down. And sometimes it was upset. It would slap the water. It would take off. It would go, you know, turn. But it was, it was really interesting, you know, kind of a, kind of a moody fish at times and you could definitely tell just kind of the body language kind of how it was feeling well a lot of times you know if the water's real muddy like that you don't know like when you've when you've seen that fish for the first time you could have run over him four times already absolutely you know you you push him a little bit with a canoe and then he moves up a little bit and he's all nice and happy and then you push him again he still doesn't roll or make any indication that he was there. And then maybe you push over him one more time and then, then he rolls like, and and you're like, why is that fish so unhappy? Like, well, Mm -hmm. because you've run over him four times, maybe you even hit him with a paddle. Um, But that, that's the same thing with a tarpon. I actually had somebody just, just um, send me a question about maybe doing a podcast about um, determining tarpon behavior based upon the rolling activity and the same thing, you know, as you know, the same thing is true there. Like you can tell a lot about the tarpon's attitude and willingness to eat by the way that they're rolling. And um, that's interesting that that fish does the same thing. So, you know, did you see these fish ever feeding on anything before, just naturally or or not? Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you may not have always seen it, but let me put put it this way you, you definitely heard it oh yeah they make um, a big pop like so, a tarpon at night. oh yeah it was yeah it was kind of similar to like a um kind of like a like a you hear like almost like a suction kind of noise and then mm-hmm. just a loud kind of pop you know like wow. a flap of the water almost yeah and that was you know your arapaima crushing you know a peacock bass or piranha or something to that effect <laughs> they, so they're very effective feeders. A, a, a fish that's yeah, I mean, what was what was a nice fish down there when you were fishing for them, like lengthwise, like some something that they were really proud of? I mean, I know we said they might grow to ten feet long, but what's like, you know, the the sure. benchmark? Yeah. So what's 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 cool is, and you know, the, the dynamics of the fishery down there are kind of evolving a little bit. 
in the sense that, you know, a few years ago, or even, you know, four or five years ago, the, the fish numbers, the volume of fish, there was less of them. And because of that, they would grow really big, right? There's less mouths to feed. Now, because they've done such a good job effectively managing the population of fish, there's a lot more of the fish, and but there's fewer, you know, I guess kind of true trophy big, big fish because there's more mouths to feed and there's only certain resources, wow. right? That's interesting. So the dynamics are changing a little bit. Now, there's still really good fish down there. Um, I was lucky enough to catch, I was down there fishing with three guys and I actually caught the biggest fish of the trip, which is pretty cool. But what, what they kind of consider to be a trophy fish, what they get really excited about kind of benchmark to is a, a 70 inch fish. 70 um, inches. that's kind of the, the benchmark that everyone's trying to get to or break anything 70 or over is kind of like, wow, you really really caught a really awesome fish. You know, it's kind of like a 50 inch muskie right. or, you know, whatever. You got any idea how much that fish would so, weigh? Yeah. yeah. So, um, the fish I caught, um, was 78 inches and it was about 36 inches in girth. Wow. Um, and what's cool is, like I said, over the years, they've kind of developed their own kind of unique kind of fish weight formula based off what they've learned about the arapaima, the tagging, the, measurement, you know, all that good stuff, the data that they've compiled and they have a cool little chart that actually hangs, um, back at kind of the little main, uh, lodge area where you can basically kind of, you know, the weights on one axis, the girths on one axis, and then you kind of can figure out where it was. But long story short, that fish that I caught, uh, came out to be about 210 pounds. Wow. Um, I'm looking at it right now. Really awesome deal. Yeah. I'm really awesome on, deal. On your, uh, Instagram, K G M. <laughs> I don't know why I'm having a, a <laughs> I just had a stroke. I think K G E M A S 65 is your Instagram K Gemma 65. And, uh, you go back a couple of pictures and, and the, uh, this fish is beautiful, man. It's like, it's got some red on the bottom, a lot of red on the tail, but it's it's like a carp color on the top, like a gold. Which it was really unique. Yeah, I've I've never seen. I mean, and you know, the fish are very pretty themselves for sure. You know, I got some like you said, there's some red in there, and then you know, various shades of kind of gold or green almost. But uh, yeah, the the fish that I caught was really cool. I thought because it kind of had that, like you said, kind of that gold carp glow to it, uh-huh. um, which was really really neat. Um, but it's a, it's a heck of a fish. And so that was the biggest one we caught. And then most of the other fish we caught were typically in what I would say, probably like the 50 to kind of 60 ish range inches. Yeah. So um, like on something like that, fish. like a, a 50 inch fish, would you like, what, what's the day like? Like I always kind of, you know, try to figure out like, okay, is this a trip where I'm going to catch one fish a week or is this a fish where, you know, a fish a day is good or is it a fish an hour or like, you know, there's lots of different kinds of trip. You go red fishing in Louisiana, you you could expect to catch a hundred. You go sure. tarpon fishing in the Keys, you might be able to expect to catch, you know, if you're a good angler, you, you get a, a, a fish a day, maybe, maybe, you know, a couple of weeks, sure. you know, permit fishings like one a week. So what, is, how does this kind of stack up in, in there? Yeah, for sure. So arapaima fishing, um, which I learned, you know, as I was doing it, obviously, um, it, it, it can be pretty technical. Um, and it's not the easiest thing to do 
with a fly rod. I mean, because conceptually you think about it, these fish get huge, right? I mean, they can be well over 200 pounds. So you're throwing, you know, the big guns, you know, it's all 12 weights, right? So mm-hmm. it's a big rod, you know, and typically these fish, I mean, they're big flies too. I mean, all the, all the flies we're using were all four to eight inches long and thick, you know, mm-hmm. peacock bass imitations, piranha imitations. And so you have to be able to cast, you know, a heavy stick and a heavy fly. And, you know, I mean, most of the casting, like, you know, I mean, it's typically going to be in the 50 to 75 foot range. You're making decently long casts and presentations. So it's fairly technical in that regard. And then sometimes the floating line, depending on water depth, sometimes the intermediate line to get the fly down a little bit. Mm. So it's really interesting. And it's, 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 it's definitely harder than it seems. You know, if kind of what you're saying, kind of what's a good day. Really what uh, they said is about, you know, a fish a day is a really good day. Um, you know, so you fish about six days. So, you know, if you catch five, six fish, I mean, that was a really successful week. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fish is hard, one, because there's the, you know, kind of the sight fish fishing and then the casting. I mean, you know how all the variables add up. Right. But then what's really hard about the fish is actually connecting with the fish and setting home the hook. Hmm. The arapaima has an incredibly bony mouth. And what's crazy about it, which um, I learned as kind of the week went on, um, is what happens is a lot of times they'll come up and they'll suck the fly. And then they'll, unlike a tarpon, which at that point, typically, you know, you feel it, you set the hook and more times than not, He'll do, he'll do you a solid and turn really quickly and basically, you know, kind of set the hook himself almost. The arapaima typically doesn't do that. What's crazy is it's almost like it doesn't know what's happening. It'll suck the fly. It may feel it, but then it'll keep swimming at you. Hmm. So you have to just strip like a madman. I mean, and when you strip set, I mean, you got to strip set hard. Like whatever you think strip setting hard means probably multiply it by two or three times and that's what you need to be doing. (laughs) So you really have to just strip as hard as you can and get as tight as quick as you can. Because what's interesting about the fish, like I said, it it seems to, it would take the fly and then it would keep swimming at you, which of course then creates slack. So you really got to try to strip in line hard and fast to get tight to it. And then, you know, kind of once the hook was seated at that point, then the fish would typically you know, feel that and be a fish and then take off and jump and all kinds of cool stuff like that. But actually just getting a solid hook set and connection was probably one of the most, if not the whole kind of hardest parts about that kind of fishing. Hmm. Have anyone, um, I'm sure that people have tried all kinds of things at this point with, I mean, this is a pretty mature fishery, but what about circle hooks on flies? You know, what's interesting, Tom, is I don't know if there's been a whole lot of that. You know, every single fly that we've been chucking and then that the uh, the natives kind of use down there has been a J-hook. Because hmm. um, that's so been, I, been pretty, you know, effective in the past on the tarpon. Like, mm-hmm. you know, to, to and, and some people were using even tube flies, um, you know, to where they they could uh, put different types of hooks on the on the fly depending on what the fish were doing. Um you know, maybe they didn't want to fish a circle hook when they're swimming down the ocean, but they might want to do it when they're laid up. So if you have a tube fly, you could choose like, do I want a J hook? Do I want a circle hook or whatever? But I know there for a little while, man, people were tying a lot of flies on circle hooks and, and, uh, especially when you got a fish that's swimming at you like that, that could be, that could be pretty good because that circle hook could just, just nick it 
just enough to sure. keep the keep the fly in the mouth, you know. And then when you come tight, you know they they sometimes I don't know. I mean, it's worth a try, I guess. But I when think it's a wrinkle it, worth it's it's a really that. hard thing to do, you know. Like that's why certain certain types of fishing, like permit fishing, take a long time to to have any sort of major advancements because like who wants to go try that when you're only going to catch six fish in a week and you've traveled all the right. way around the world to go right. do it. Like, right. like do, do you really want to be the one that, I mean, it's going to be somebody like your guide there that, mm-hmm. that goes for a week and watches and sees all this stuff. And then when he tries it, then, you know, you know maybe I'll try a circle hook this time and see what happens. And, you know, sometimes when you do things like that, you it's it's completely revolutionary and then you're just like well why didn't anybody do this you know 10 years ago but well but the reason is because the stakes are too high like right (laughs) you know um but that that's that's where i've seen a lot of the advancements you know because of that like like with permit fishing like what do you want to try something so different for if you're just an angler coming from somewhere else like you only have a, a certain amount of time on this fish, might as well just fish like a merkin type fly because sure. it's it's the most proven. But you know, in the scheme of things, it doesn't work that well, honestly. You know, like like compared to a bonefish fly. I mean, you can go someplace and you can catch hundreds of bonefish on a on a gotcha or something. That fly works really well for bonefish, but you know, we we hadn't quite cracked the code, even though people are catching a lot more permit than they than they used to still hadn't cracked the code and it could be that way that way for, for this fish in the hook, you know, or at least the hooking technique. Now, when, when I was first hearing about guys going down for, for these fish, I was hearing that they were having all kinds of issues with, with tackle, um, especially like fly lines, breaking fly lines. Like when, when, when you're going to be one of the first people to try to try to hook one of these fish on fly, you know, probably a lot of advancements have been made, but I heard that people were breaking fly lines. That was a big problem. I even heard that uh, some people were taking a fly line and um, putting it inside of um, some braided, uh, offshore braided line so that, you know, some of that is hollow core. And so they were putting it in there and then that would keep, you know, make a, make a strong outer core what was your experience with with that kind of stuff? Yeah, it's really interesting. The uh, the tackle and just kind of the approach has definitely changed over the years. Obviously, more and more people spent time doing it. But yeah, I mean, so basically, my setup for that, like I said, you had the twelve weight, right? And then from a line perspective, I was fishing big, heavy um, GT line, which is generally you know fifty, seventy five grain, you know, core heavy stuff. Mm. Um, and that, that held up just fine, you know, whether it was floating or intermediate. Um, and then for a leader, it's basically just straight 80 pounds, <laughs> pretty mono, you know, pretty, pretty simple. So you can just pull away, which yeah. is really nice. You know, there's no, no class tippet in this, in this well, fishing. That's, like <laughs> that's what was happening. I think early on, like when, when I used to work with, with Rio, um, on their fly lines, we would have you know, these different cores, but basically the core was about 20 to 30 pound mm-hmm. monofilament. And, and then they would build the fly line around that. Now, I guess there's so many other opportunities and, and materials like you could build a line around a braided 
uh, sure. you know, some, some braided line that could be 150 pound test at, at the core of the fly line. So that, that could be a major change, but, um, that's why I think they were breaking a lot of fly lines early as the fly line evolution hadn't quite happened so that, you know, even though you, you're fishing 80 pound leader and then, so you had two weak links, you had the actual hook is a weak link. And then you have the actual fly line is a weak link. And then the bre- the backing is probably stronger than the fly line. The fly line was weak. And then, then the hook was weak. Did you, sure. um, did you b- bend out any hooks or anything like that? Was that a, was that an issue for you? The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history designed by John Browning. The 1911 was the standard issue sidearm of the U S military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, Almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Now I'll tell you what, the gear itself, the you know, the lines, the hooks, that all held up fine. The, the most challenging part was occasionally what would happen was... Uh, uh, was a piranha. They would they would come. They would bite your leader in half. Oh. They would bite your fly line. You know they nick it. So that honestly was probably the the hardest part. I mean the tackle and the gear with the way it's evolved over the years and the tactics was pretty much fine. The the hardest part, like I said, was just dealing with the the piranha because they would come up and they would bite your leader in half. You know they would bite your fly line, nick your fly oh. line, cut it in half. So. That was a that was definitely the most challenging part was dealing with the piranha. Um, so you want to, and I did, you know, you want to bring, you know, two or three kind of backup lines just to have, um, you know, in case that happens, which it does, because uh, obviously there's no uh, there's no fly shop or no Amazon.com down there. Right. So you, you gotta whatever you got is what you got. So it's good to have extra. So I see in a bunch of these pictures you're waiting or you're in the water. Is that? I've never, I've never been anywhere where they're piranha. Is that a, is that a concern at all? Well, it, it's definitely in the back of your mind, put it that way. You know, it's not just piranha either. I mean, one, the water's murky. So you don't really know what's down there. And then what's a little unnerving for some is, you know, typically these ponds and lakes that you're fishing in, uh, they're chock full of caiman. <laughs> so, oh. so you kind of have that, you know, and then there's also electric eels. There's freshwater stingrays. So Sometimes, you know, you just kind of have to take the kind of ignorance and bliss and, you know, I'm just going to hop in and hope for the best. <laughs> so, but it's always, always in the back of your mind. There's definitely some, uh, some pretty interesting critters down there. You know, like I said, between the caiman, the stingrays, the eels, the piranha. So there's definitely some, uh, uh, some interesting things below the surface. What but about, luckily for myself, I was okay. What about bacterial things? Like, you know, that's a warm river in a warm area. It seems like there'd be parasites and and other things oh, yeah. certainly you got to be careful with the drinking water i would imagine um yep so i would say as a from a male's perspective you definitely don't want to uh urinate in the river <laughs> um while under the water i would highly recommend against that yeah that's um, what i was going to mention that thing that yeah what, so why <laughs> explain why you would be careful with that well i'd be careful with that because down there they have a little uh uh parasite little critter that uh you know if you were to do that like some people do here in the states whether it's a pool a lake a pond whatever down there they actually have a little critter that can uh swim up your canal if you want to call it that and uh kind of 
dig in and uh, make its home there. So you don't want to, uh, you don't want to be doing that because that's a painful, painful process from what I understand. Um, Cause they've had people come down there and that's happened. Um, yeah. So you, you definitely don't want to be doing like, that. How big then, is like, this parasite? Like I noticed that in one of these pictures you're wearing tights, is that, mm-hmm. is that a precaution? Is that enough? Like, or that, yeah, I mean, that's, that's generally enough. Um, but it, it's small though, man. I mean, it can, you'd be surprised what, you know, things can squeeze through and, you know, the tights that I was wearing that helps for sure. But, you know, the general rule of thumb is, you know, just don't, uh, try to do what you can. Don't be doing that. And, you know, hope for the best. Hmm. But, uh, and then like you mentioned, you know, obviously don't want to drink the water either. What's fascinating is, you know, the locals, the natives down there, I mean, they drink the water straight out of the river. You know, that's like their tap water. Um, but then, you know, for us whose bodies aren't used to that, you know, we would be sick, very sick within, you know, minutes probably. Right. So, um, it's just interesting, like I said, kind of the dynamic there between, you know, how they were fine, but we weren't. So it just, it was, it was really interesting to see. So did anyone on your trip get sick at all for any reason? No, everyone, uh, was good. The only thing that, um, and, you know, we all brought extensive kind of medical packs, you know, things of that nature too. The only thing I was a little concerned about was one of the guys, because it was myself and uh, three other individuals, they take four rods a week. So, um, but one of the guys that actually the first day of the trip uh, hooked a big arapaima and the line kind of got wrapped around his uh, pinky finger mm. and it just absolutely just ripped it apart. I mean, big sheath of skin hanging there, bleeding. And that's kind of like you mentioned earlier, kind of with the bacteria and whatnot down there. I mean, it's very important to, you know, really address that and clean that really good. And he had to kind of do that daily, you know, with Neosporin, kind of treat it, rewrap it, things of that nature. And luckily he was fine. Um, but that's definitely something to be concerned about too. You know, whether it's a cut, a bite, you really got to really really have to take good care of yourself down there. And if that does happen, make sure you're, you know, on it and treating it really quickly. Right. Yeah. That, man, that, I don't know when you're down there, it's almost kind of like what was going on in the world right now. Like, you know, you become so aware of like, Oh, that's a little scratch. I better take care of that immediately because that could go, that could accelerate and be really bad if that got infected or a puncture on your foot or something that at home you might not even think about, you know, but it's like, okay, need to get some alcohol need to get some neosporin. I need to cover that. I need to be careful with, I need to check it tomorrow. Like what we have going on today in the coronavirus world is, wow, I just touched something, should wash my hands. I should, you know, <laughs> take whatever precautions I'm standing too close to this person that person coughed. I'm not even going in that store. Like <laughs> that's, that's what's yeah, going no, on. But you become, that's, that's you exactly become it, like yeah. so much more aware and like a, somebody that travels to these kind of places, like a, like, you know, a, a green beret, for example, they are keenly aware of that all the time. Like, you know, they are in austere environments all the time to where they just have to be very, very careful with the most mundane things for normal people. Like you get a blister on your foot, that could be, that could be terrible. That could be really, really bad if you don't take proper care of it. <clears throat> so that's that's kind of interesting. What what stuff do you 
now that you've traveled so much, you've, you've been to so many cool places, what's your medical kit look like as far as that goes? Yeah. So I always try to make sure I have plenty of, you know, just antibacterial alcohol, things to clean and treat cuts, um, as much of that as possible. Um, I also have, you know, just your typical basic things, you know, Advil, you know, allergy pills, if you're in the jungle, just because you never know how you can react, band-aids, gauze, wraps, um, you know, just some basic kind of medical things like a little needle you had to stitch yourself up scissors gauze heavy bandages just all you know i mean all your probably no different than most people what about i i what do you do as far as the 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 water like diarrhea medicine um do you carry antibiotics or anything like that oh yeah yeah there's always plenty plenty of uh pepto and uh emodium too to clog you up if need be um but luckily down here, and then, you know, if I'm, depending on where I'm at, sometimes I'll bring a water filter or whatnot. But down here, luckily, they, they would bring in bottles of water, so the water is okay. Um, but I always have that as backup regardless, just because you never know, in my opinion. Right. Um, so that's always an important part of my medical kit, too. Yeah, that's the quickest way to ruin a trip. Like, I don't know, somebody told me, like, right away when I started doing some traveling was... um you know, and this came from experience right away was, you know, watch the top of cans. Like if you, if they, if they're providing ice, which doesn't sound, I don't know, maybe the, maybe they were providing some kind of ice down there, but ice a lot of times in, in certain places is like a super luxury. Um, and sure. so sometimes they'll have, you know, ice in a cooler and they'll have some Cokes or, you know, some sort of canned things. Well, that ice is just river water frozen. and so you, you, you go to have a Coke or a beer or whatever, and, you know, you just treat it like you do at home and you get the water right off the top of that can. And so that was a, that was a good tip. I thought like, make sure you wipe that off really good and don't drink that stuff because it doesn't take much, like a couple of drops of the wrong kind of water, I think could cause you some serious problem. I don't know how much it takes. I don't want to know how much it takes. I don't keep it all out of me, but that, and then like when, when we got to Christmas Island, um, the first time one of the guys told me, he's like, look, just take a towel and put it over your sink. And then that way you won't, you know, wake up in the middle of the night or whatever. And, you know, take a big slug of water like you would at home or brush your teeth with it. Like that was a, that's a big one. Like brushing your teeth with, you know, contaminated water that which is fine for the natives but we will not do well with it and you could you know brushing your teeth with it's enough right like so bottled water and all that stuff yeah it's funny you mentioned that because it it is hard and it's adjustment for a lot of folks um and even myself who i've been certain places and it's still hard because like you said um you know if we weren't bathing in the river i mean we were using a rudimentary shower system with water pumped right out of the river Mm -hmm. and yeah i mean you gotta when you're washing yourself i mean yeah you gotta you know be extra cognizant to you know keep your mouth shut you know some people like to you know kind of swig water in the shower well you can't do that or like you said brushing your teeth is really hard too it's just stuff that's routine you don't even think about here you just don't want to take that risk in that kind of environment which is hard to do um that's a neat trick with the towel i I like that that's pretty good well you know it only takes one time and 
I've, I haven't had it happen to me necessarily where I've, I've been on some trips where I didn't feel a hundred percent, but I didn't, I didn't get the full blown Montezuma's revenge, you know, but I have mm-hmm. seen other guests on the same trip have it go very badly for them. And, you know, here's a guy that just traveled all the way around the world, been looking forward to this trip for a, for a year. And yeah, maybe he can get out for an hour a day, maybe. And, and he's mm-hmm. throwing up and, you know, going diarrhea all over the place. That's, that's a terrible way to spend your trip. And it does take a lot of discipline, but it also takes like some knowledge, like to know what to avoid. And, and when I was first starting to travel like that, I had no idea. I had no idea sure. if it hadn't have been for people to tell me things like that. I would have, I would have not known at all. Like the water's bad fruit, you know, like you got to be careful with fruit. Like if fruits just, you know, they wash the fruit off with what looks like clean water and then sure. you eat that, that can be really bad. So I don't know. All of that stuff is, is, uh, just, just things to watch out for. But that, that sounds like, um, a really, really cool trip, man. I want to do it. What, um, what about these other fish that you're catching? I see these, I see two other fish, like it looks like a payara and then mm-hmm. this catfish that you have here, which you, you call it a shovel nose, a tiger shovel nose catfish. That fish, that looks, that's a badass fish right there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what was neat about the trip, Tom, is obviously we were there to fish for Arapaima, but the opportunities that presented themselves to fish for other cool things, you know, either intentionally or more so just almost like a lucky kind of bycatch was rampant throughout. Hmm. So, I mean, typically what we would do is, you know, we'd fish Arapaima obviously the majority of the time. And then, you know, sometimes the air, like, like anywhere, you know, there's no magic fish. Sometimes the fishing just flat out sucks, mm-hmm. you know, and the fish aren't biting, they're not happy and nothing's happening. So you could either, you know, continue to grind it out and maybe you'll get a bite or maybe you shift gears a little bit and try for something different, which is to me kind of cool because it kind of breaks the day up some different new opportunity. So I had, I brought an eight weight with, and I brought a 10 weight with rod and some of these ponds were awesome, awesome. And just chock full of a uh, peacock bass. Oh, cool. So I'd take my little eight weight and I throw a little popper, you know, on there and I would pop for peacock bass and it was awesome, you know, mm-hmm. and they would come up and they crush the fly. And, um, so I caught a couple, you know, nice little four five, six pounders, um, which was pretty cool. Um, and then the, um, catfish I caught, I caught a couple of, a couple of those, which is pretty cool. That was just a kind of a lucky bycatch. You know, I was, we were fishing for Arapaima and, uh, throw We were fishing more of a sinking kind of intermediate setup and, fly got down to the bottom and fish whacked it. And I thought it was an Arapaima. And then that came to the surface and said, wow, this is really cool. What's this? You know, exotic looking catfish, which was neat. So do the natives um, want to eat that? Like, are, Oh yeah. That's, oh, that, that one goes yeah, in the that box. Is, that's going in the, that's going in the cooler for sure. Yeah. The box. Yeah. That, that is good eating. Cause let me tell you the fried, they, they would, cause really a lot of what we ate down there was a lot of fish, you know, grilled or fried. And they made this one dish of the fried catfish and it was, freaking unbelievable mm-hmm. i mean you it was better than florida grouper wow. <laughs> it was amazing <laughs> and what well, else do yeah. they eat like what are the what are the fish that are that are real available like are, are they the piranha 
Oh yeah. So a lot of a lot of what they're eating down there is typically peacock bass, piranha, and um, catfish. Mm-hmm. Um, all of which are very good. Um, the peacock bass is really good. Um, kind of white and flaky, a little bony. So you got to kind of be cognizant of that. Um, the piranha is really good too. Kind of a light white, kind of flaky, nice taste. Not quite as bony as the uh, peacock bass and then the catfish which like I said, that was probably the best thing I ate down there was, like I said, they had this, um, I think it was a banana catfish they caught, another type of catfish. And, you know, they just caught it, they cut it up and they ground it up. And he's like, it was almost like catfish balls or catfish mm. strips. And I remember, and they deep fried it then. And I remember eating that and I said, man, this is amazing. What is this? They said, it's fried catfish. Said, wow, this is nothing like fried catfish I've ever had. Wow. You know, like I said, it, it tastes better than Florida grouper. Wow, um, cool. it was so good. Um, probably cause it was one really fresh and then two, just the environment is so pristine, you know, it's just, it was really cool. Really cool. Yeah. So one thing I want to ask you is, um, you know, it's, it's really cool that you, that, that they've kind of created this, this fishery and they've gotten the, the, the tribe, the natives, the locals to understand that the arapaima is a source of revenue, right? That seems really hard in a place like this where it's not, I mean, that was hard with in Florida where we have the, the mullet fishermen and to teach, you know, to try to, to show those guys a different way. And this is in a place where, you know, people like to make money. This is industrious and, you know, but but there was a time not not that long ago, actually, where the mullet fishing was really causing great problems in the state of Florida, and so there was this this real push to get those mullet fishermen, the mullet netters, to be fishing guides or to do something else, right? Because without the mullet there were going to be no fishermen and no fishing guides and the, the, the whole system was, was in danger of collapsing. That seems more challenging in a jungle environment, a rural um, place where, you know, you know, the driving force isn't making money. It's kind of surviving day to day, maybe, or just living a, a, a comfortable, happy life. Um, certainly not, probably not as many people worried about their IRAs or, or, um, (laughs) retirement, you know, it's like, so, so to get someone to understand that you should be eating the catfish and the piranha and leaving this other fish alone where you could just stand on a canoe and, and shoot an arrow into one and have enough for the entire village and nobody has to fish for a week. Like that seems really hard. How did they do that? What what do you what's your opinion on on that? Yeah, it, it's truly amazing feed is really what it was, and that's one of the things that I really kind of honed in on early and was able to kind of talk to some of them about. Um, you know, obviously down there, like I said earlier, I mean, it's, they live a complete subsistence lifestyle. You know, right. I mean, everything I mean, that it's, that, it's that's not surprising at all. Like that just seems yeah. like the way that pretty much everyone in a in an environment like that. There's like, well, if you don't have refrigeration, stocking up means nothing, right? So why would you want to kill two when 
it's just going to go to waste. Like, let's kill right. one, let's go back, let's celebrate, let's feed the whole village. And then, you know, somebody else can go kill the other one next time. I'm taking next week off. And, you know, that's that's just kind of the lifestyle because it makes sense. Sure. Like, you know, they don't, they just don't think like we do. And and part of that is refrigeration. I mean, you know, that's a big one. Like we can we can keep catching them. And we'll throw them sure. in the freezer, you know, and we'll stock up for times like this where we might have to be sitting at home. But that's a different that's a different thing. So I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I just wanted to um, kind of make that comparison. No, absolutely. And, and you know, it's it's hard. And like you said, it's especially hard down there because these guys, you know, I mean, they've been approached many times over by, like I said, the extraction industries. And then besides that, you know, there is a lot of. Um, poaching, you know, for the kind of illegal wildlife trade, whether it was arapaima or exotic birds or monkeys, because these guys, I mean, the tribe, I mean, they know the jungle like the back of their hand. I mean, it's truly amazing how dialed in they are to their environment, their surrounding and their resources. And to their credit, you know, for a while, a lot of the older generation didn't understand, right? And how could they? Because like you said, after you get in the routine of doing it, so, you know, doing things a certain way for so many years, it just becomes second nature. Why would you do it any other way? Mm -hmm. But to their credit, you know, some of the, 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 the son of the chief of the village, this guy named Rovin Alvin, he was kind of like our head guide um, throughout the whole kind of experience down there, head fishing guide. And really him and a few of the other kind of younger kind of up and comers in the village early on kind of realized kind of the value and how this through sport fishing and other just general ecotourism could be a vehicle in a way, you know, for them to kind of shift gears a little bit. And they knew it'd be really, really hard. Um, and it still is really hard because, you know, while I think the village as a whole is largely on board with it, you know, I'm sure there's still some grumblings and whatnot from older folks and whatnot. And it's different, but really just over time, it was kind of forced by that younger kind of generation. And I think that's always in any culture society, I think that always can strike a chord with um, older generations. Um, Because I think at the end of the day, you know, whether you live in the jungles of Guyana or New York City, ultimately as a grandparent or a parent, what you want is what's best for your children and the future of their success, you know, and their children's children. So I think when you kind of approach it that way, which they did, you know, the children were really, or the younger generation was really on board with it. They thought really this was the way, you know, I think for the older generations, it was kind of a, an aha moment for them that said, you know what, this may make us uncomfortable. We may not agree with it, but you know, if this is really what they think is best, then, you know, maybe we need to think more about this. And, um, I think kind of using that kind of help shift some gears a little bit. And now really the whole village is really come together and united as a team kind of on this approach. And it was, uh, it was really cool to see. Um, and it's really amazing what they did. So obviously they are, um, enjoying some financial um, rewards like as this fishery has matured people like yourself are coming down there spending money that is being shared among the community so I mean because that's that's where you know it has to that has to happen otherwise it's like 
nobody will ever understand and people will will um you know start poaching the fish out of spite sure. because only two people are profiting off of not fishing for these fish anymore so you know some all the other people are like well we'll just go kill them all you know you see that happen in lots of different places so how is it that like the entire tribe from your observation is benefiting from this like to do a lot of people work at this lodge or is everything kind of connected to this sport fishing industry in the arapaima or like how is that working yeah absolutely and like you said earlier i mean it's definitely a show me the money approach right once the money starts coming in people start you know getting empowered and benefited then really more people buy in and what's cool is like i said what they did is they built a very simple you know rudimentary kind of lodge call it um and that was obviously driven to cater for anglers so arapaima sport fishing is the main driver they get a lot of people who come down there to bird who are big birders who like to watch birds yeah and then just general ecotourism as well and what's really cool is i mean it's kind of the old saying you know (laughs) it takes a village well here it really does because you know you have the fishing guides right then you have um, guides for birding and then you have, you know, kind of the, um, you know, the women who do a lot of the cooking and cleaning and washing and whatnot. And then you have kind of the teenage boys. They're the ones lugging the canoes through the jungle, you know? Mm-hmm. So everyone is kind of coming together and doing their job and a part and it's providing lots of opportunities for really the whole village to get involved. Like everyone is doing something. They have guys who, you know, carve these amazing wood carvings of arapaima and other fish. Um, and they sell at a little kind of craft shop they have. And I bought a couple cause it's awesome, you know? So every, there's just a lot of ways people can get involved. And then the second half of the trip, we actually went further up river and went camping out in the jungle, kind of away from the little lodge set up. And there was probably a team of, you know, 40, 50 people, that came with just to support us four people, hmm. you know, wow. whether it was setting up camp, fishing, cooking, cleaning, hauling canoes. I mean, there's a job for everybody. So everyone's doing something. It's really cool to kind of see the arapaima or the sport fishing element, you know, kind of anchor that and provide so many opportunities for everyone in the village to truly get involved in some capacity. And they take a lot of pride in it too. And it's really cool to, uh, to see, you know, like the fishing guides, are just as proud as the, you know, kind of younger boys kind of hauling the canoe. They all know, you know, you play a role. And it's funny because, like, at the end of the day, you know, when we were coming back to kind of the launch point of the lake after fishing, you know, the it was always funny because the younger boys, they would kind of wait there for us to get out of the boat because they had to haul it back, you know. And they would always be smiling, you know, when they would see, like, if our shirts were dirty, you know. Right. That means that their efforts, you know, made me happy, made me a happy client, you know, because they, you know, schlepped the canoe two miles through the jungle. I caught an arapaima that made them happy. That made me happy. So it was just, it was cool seeing them take a lot of pride in what they do and just really getting excited about the little things like that. Right. You know, it was really good. What was the, what was the tipping like? Like what's the currency exchange? And I don't know, I made a mistake one time went to uh, Honduras and I was fishing with this, this kid down there and I just had this wonderful trip. And at the end of the trip, I tipped him what would be, I don't know, a a year salary. Like (laughs) I didn't mean to, but I don't think that that was necessarily a good thing 
to do. I mean, I was trying to be generous, but there is also being too generous. Like it needs to be kind of in line with, um, you know, what, what would be expected. So like, what is a dollar worth there? And, and did you tip? Yeah, for sure. So, um, <laughs> that's, what's fascinating as you know, as you travel abroad, you know, there's different customs exchange rates. So it's always kind of a, kind of an interesting, uh, area to kind of delve into, but yeah. So in Guyana, <laughs> um, this is kind of funny because when we first got down there, we, you know, we spent one night at a local hotel before kind of heading out to the bush. And, uh, I got the bill, uh, the next morning and it said that, um, it said I owed like $30,000. <laughs> Wait a second. <laughs> you know, so I started freaking out. I was like, oh, it's in Guyanese currency. Okay, I got it. So basically the way that works is about a thousand Guyanese dollars equals about five bucks US. So, you know, you kind of back into the math that way. But anyway, um, yes, I, I mean, wherever I go, I, I just, I think it's always important to tip. I know it's kind of a, sometimes can be a weird or kind of awkward or un comfortable conversation with a lot of, you know, outdoorsmen, whether it's fishing or even hunting or other things, you know, but, um, I did, you know, and what, what I do is I like generally, I shoot for, you know, probably about a hundred bucks a day. Um, is generally my approach to tipping, whether it's, you know, here, abroad, anywhere. I just, I feel like that's a kind of a proven kind of formula, which is generally accepted everywhere. Um, so that was kind of my approach to that. Um, and that's kind of was my strategy there as far as, you know, kind of each day I would set aside additional funds for that purpose, you know, which went to, which was then, you know, divided amongst everybody in the village from the guy, to the cook, to the, you know, boy. So everybody got a piece of that, you know, kind of spreading the wealth that way per se. Right. Which, you know, made me feel good too, because, you know, thing is, I mean, it's just, <laughs> You know, it's a very simple, very simple, basic rudimentary setup that they have down there, but they treat you so well. The service is unbelievable. I tell people it's like Ritz Carlton service without Ritz Carlton accommodations, right. but you know, they take so much pride in what they do and they're so friendly and they want to help. And they just say, you know, it, it, you just feel good doing it because you see how much it, you know, it impacts them on a day-to-day -day basis. And then what it also does, not only is it impactful financially for them, it's also impactful because it encourages them to continue to be good stewards of their resources. Right. It just reinforces that idea that, Hey, look how happy this guy is. Look at this money we've made. We need to continue to do this because this is really, we have something here. Um, so that's always very important for me wherever I go, but especially in a setup like this. I mean, I just, I think it just, uh, you just got to do it, man. That's awesome. Um, that sounds like a, that sounds like an amazing trip. It was super successful. You caught what you were after and then came back with way more than you expected. That's, that's the recipe for a great trip. In my opinion, like catching what you're after sometimes is the, it, it turns out if it's a truly great trip, catching what you were after, what the initial, um, kind of lure was to go to that place if that turns out to be the the least cool thing that happened on the trip, then that is that's a great trip. Like, no, and that's yeah. that's exactly what it was, Tom. Because I'll tell you what, you know, catching a you know arapaima two hundred pounder plus on the fly. I mean, that was 
freaking cool, you know, but honestly, what was really cool about the trip, which I think was cooler was just the experience and the environment as a whole. I mean, you were fishing in a literally pristine environment. There wasn't trash. There wasn't pollution. There wasn't anything. It was a pristine, 100% preserved environment just as, you know, and so you'd be fishing for arapaima, but then you would hear howler monkeys in the background. You would, you would see monkeys swinging the trees. You'd see macaws, exotic birds, eagles. Mm. I mean, caiman, it was just, it was unbelievable. It was like, you know, fishing in the zoo or the jungle or the aquarium. I mean, just stuff that you only would see there, except it was in a natural state. And to me, that was, you know, honestly really made for just the, the trip as far as, I mean, like I said, it was obviously there to catch our pima and fish and that was great. But really just being in that kind of environment, as pristine as it was, and just hearing the sounds and the sights, I mean, that to me was, you know, worth more than the Arapaima ever could be. It was, just, it was so cool. Man. So that's, cool. That's cool. You couldn't have described a, a, a great trip in my book better than that. Like, that's... That's that's it. That's what it's all about. And uh, I sure do hope that I have this trip in my lifetime. But but certainly others. And you know, sometimes the best trips are the ones that you know seem kind of seem kind of simple and and almost mundane in the beginning. And then you you have some sort of incredible experience that was that was unexpected that might not even have anything to do with fishing. Maybe you took a a a, a trip through the rainforest or something and and saw just the craziest things you could ever imagine. I don't know, but that's what this fishing travel is for me is like, it just opens up some opportunities that probably wouldn't have existed before. If you weren't after that Arapaima, what are the chances that you would have, you would have ended up in, in Guyana in this, in this pristine environment, you know? So that's, that's cool. And the whole story of the, of the, um, you know, how this, this fish and this pursuit of this fish has kind of saved it you know, in a lot of ways, because it was probably on the brink of extinction. That's, that's cool too. So man, what a great, what a great trip. What's next for you? Well, you know, it's funny because the host down there, like I said, Johan from IndyFly, he's a from South Africa mm. African guide and he kind of planned a little bug in my head and he was really pumping up this uh, tiger fishing in Africa. Mm. So, well, there's a lot of different ways that there's a lot of different ways that you can do that. And that tiger fishing um, is, is super cool. I've had the pleasure of doing it once. Um, but I had a guide probably very similar to, to Johan. This, you know, being a guide in South Africa is like going to college. Like you have to, like those guys, if I don't know about being a fishing guide, but being a safari guide, they had to know, they had to go in and listen with headphones and they had to describe like 300 different bird calls. They would listen to the bird. They'd have to tell them what that bird was. They, they have to know everything. They have to be expert trackers. They, I mean, they know everything. It's, they are remarkable in their knowledge and what that country uh, requires of their guides. It is, it is really incredible. I hope to get somebody on the podcast that can, that can tell me about those requirements because they are beyond impressive. So I'm sure Johan is like that and um, knows a tremendous amount about his area. But one of the things that the guy planted in my head, interested to see if this is what you heard from Johan too, but this guy was a walking guide. And in order to be a walking guide, you had to have like, I don't know, so many hundred encounters with the big um, five, which is um, all of the biggest mammals Mm -hmm. down there, which all will hurt you. Um, 
So like Cape Buffalo, Rhino, um, lions, all this stuff. So you had to have these encounters on foot and you had to, you had to document them and have a, a incredible number of them, right? Like, you know, you, you, you talk to somebody that's like an experienced elk hunter and maybe they run into a grizzly bear every year for the last 30 years. Okay. They have had 30 grizzly bears and grizzly bear encounters. That's, that would be a lot, right? I mean, that, that would seem like it would be a lot to me. I mean, I'm sure people have more, a lot of people hopefully have less, but that would seem like a lot. These guys are having to document hundreds of encounters with the big five and and they have to have that before they can become a full-on guide. So anyway, this guy was offering to take me on a walking fishing trip through South Africa um, and fish for those fish. And wow. <laughs> I was like, man, that is obviously a lifetime trip. Uh, gonna mm-hmm. have to think. Of, gonna have to think about that one for a little bit. <laughs> yeah, that's that's probably about as cool as it gets. I'd say. Yeah. Holy so cow, what what was awesome. Johan? What was Johan? What is, how does he do it? Like out of a boat or does he walk or what does he do? Yeah, it's primarily, it's not like more out of a boat, you know, but he said there definitely would be opportunities, you know, to walk and check out different things. So it may have an element of that to some extent, um, but it sounds like majority boat, but. uh, All right. Well, when you do that one, when you do that one, we'll catch up with you again and see how it went. That sounds good. I'll be back. All right, man. Well, thanks for spending this time with us today. I really appreciate it. That sounds like an awesome trip. Tell people how they can follow you or or find out more about you. Yeah, for sure. So I'm not uh, super active, but I do like to post stuff on Instagram from time to time, really cool fishing pictures and good stuff like that, and Twitter as well. So just uh, my handle is going to be K, and then my last name, Gem, is G-E-M-A-S-6-5 um, for cool fish pictures because uh, I don't know about – you tom and most people but uh i like seeing fish pictures especially these days it makes me happy so i try to post more fish pictures lately and a lot of cool pictures from this trip and seychelles and other things so um that's probably the best way got it all right kyle well man that was awesome that's a great trip hope you guys will go check out his instagram it's really cool and uh kyle we'll catch up with you soon man thanks for uh thanks for spending this time with us i really appreciate it thanks again tom all right buddy appreciate it see ya be good all right that was kyle jemis kyle man this sounded like an awesome trip um it's a trip i'd like to go on for sure as always this podcast was brought to you by waypoint tv waypoint tv has so many different cool things on there including all of our new episodes um stuff like ca richardson's putting up his uh, flats class university that looks pretty cool there's lots of stuff to learn there and uh you can get waypoint tv on all of your different devices as well as on the web by going to waypointtv.com if you're unsure about how to get it there are uh there's a page on the website how to watch and it has instructions to Go there and show you how to download it on your Apple TV or your Roku or whatever else. You can follow the Waypoint Outdoor Collective, which has a ton of podcasts like this one, like-minded podcasts with like-minded people. And there are also many, many Instagram uh, handles. So look up Waypoint TV and uh, follow everywhere that you like. All right. Thanks for spending the time with us. Good luck with the coronavirus quarantine and we will talk to you soon see ya
on Mondays. Head offshore with Captain Scott Walker and Steve Roger for breathtaking deep sea adventures. Coming to me, coming to me, coming to me. Double. He's jumping, he's jumping, he's jumping. Oh! Oh! Look at that belly. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue. Brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern. Tell a few fish stories along the way. On Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors. Every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.